Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Today's guest is Dorchen Leithold, the legal director of the New York City Domestic Violence Agency Sanctuary for Families. In her main role, Dorchen heads the agency's legal services for survivors of gender-based violence, including providing support for obtaining orders of protection, immigration support, and sex trafficking. In addition to this important work, Dorchen also leads the Incarcerated Gender Violence Survivors Initiative, a collaboration amongst legal and social service agencies, law firms, advocacy groups, former judges, and incarcerated survivors committed to assisting survivors of gender-based incarceration in New York State. Our conversation will focus on this initiative and the systemic context of the criminal justice system, its policies and practices that exact a heavy toll on victims and survivors of domestic and sexual abuse, and its intersection with gender, race, class, and disability. Welcome, Dorchen. Thank you so much, Terry. So before we get started, I wanted to share some statistics for our listeners. There are over 1 million women behind bars, with New York State holding the fourth largest female prison population after Texas, California, and Florida. Women of color, especially Native American women, are disproportionately overrepresented in the criminal justice system. The majority of women prisoners are incarcerated for nonviolent crimes such as prostitution, fraud, or drug offenses. The prevalence of emotional, physical, and sexual violence against women is a significant contributing factor to women's use of illegal drugs. Poverty is one of the significant factors for women's involvement in the criminal justice system. And once incarcerated, women are more likely to suffer from a mental illness than men. So considering all of those facts that I just shared, can you respond to how they impacted this initiative's origin and history? Because clearly there's been a problem for a long Mm -hmm. time. So I'm wondering, why did it take so long in some ways for this initiative to come together? Yes. Well, Terry, I think it's clear to say that feminists have been focused on this issue really since the mid-1970s. And some of the most important early feminist work that's happened in our movement has addressed the issue of victims of gender-based violence who fought back against their abusers. And so often these women were sentenced to extraordinarily long prison terms. The domestic violence was ignored. They were denied the opportunity to have expert witnesses on battered woman syndrome, for example, testify at their trials. And uh, just to point to one extraordinary pioneer, Sarah Buell, who I consider one of the founding mothers of our movement, worked with others in Massachusetts to make a documentary called Defending Our Lives. It involved four narratives of women who were serving extraordinarily long sentences for having killed abusive intimate partners. It won an Academy Award, and it began to raise awareness. So this work is really nothing new. But it's interesting. I think that over time, there was less of a focus on 
incarcerated gender violence survivors, and we're reviving that work. And what happened for me is I I read an incredible decision in the Law Journal by a, a judge or actually a panel of judges for the Appellate Division First Department, and they upheld a great trial court decision in which the trial court judge, one Alice Schlesinger, had said that the parole board was wrong in not releasing a domestic violence victim named Nikki Rosakis. And essentially, Nikki Rosakis was not released on parole from prison because she continued to say in parole hearings that she had suffered abuse at the hands of her husband, whom she killed with his own gun, a gun that actually he had threatened her with multiple times and shot at her with. And so I read this decision, and it was an excellent decision. And then I wondered, is Nikki Rosakis getting representation? She's going to go up before the parole board again. And to my dismay, I learned that she was not. And at that point, I reached out to a colleague friend, Richard Rothman, who then was a partner at Wild Gotchell. He's now senior counsel. He's retired. And we took on Nikki's case. And it was an extraordinary education. I mean, we learned a lot about the history of abuse that she had suffered. We learned that she had not received protection from the criminal justice system, when she was a young mother being severely battered by her husband, you know, ultimately, she really had no choice. It was her survival or his, and she killed him, as I said, with his own gun. We went back and we analyzed the facts of Nikki's situation, and we could see that she was at great risk for lethality when this happened. And we worked with her closely in her parole case, helped her develop a very strong parole application, prepared her to go before the parole board, and she was granted parole. I think what it did was it alerted us to the fact that there's so many other women in prison in similar situations, and we created the initiative to address the needs of those women and girls, and we're really open to representing men who are victims of gender-based violence as well. Can you tell us about the history? So once you and your colleague came together to represent Nikki, what was the next step? Was it easy to find other collaborators? Yes. You know, so I think we realized that we had to reach out to others. And we wanted what I call a big tent. We wanted to reach out to diverse people who would partner with us. Of course, we were thinking about law firms. And we very quickly had the support of four major law firms, Paul Weiss, Davis Polk and Ward Well, Cleary Gottlieb, Latham and Watkins. But we also wanted others, and the people who joined us are so amazing. I mean, one, for example, is a woman named Elaine Lord, who was the superintendent of Bedford Hills for a significant, more than a decade. And while she was the superintendent of Bedford Hills, she affected very important reforms. She brought a domestic violence advocacy educational and advocacy group into prison and made it possible for women there to engage in all kinds of activities connected to gender-based violence. She was a real change agent while she was there. I mean, we brought in law professors doing incredible work at Columbia Law School, at Albany Law School, and maybe most important, we brought in 
survivors, formerly incarcerated women, to partner with us. And one of the most remarkable is a woman who served more than 30 years in prison. She was charged with crimes that were essentially committed by her abuser. We see that fact pattern fairly often. An abuser takes his victim along with him on a crime spree, and she ends up paying the price for it. In this particular case, the survivor's abuser was killed, and she faced the charges that he should have faced when she was in her very early 20s. She was denied parole six times, served 12 years that she never should have served, and she joined forces with us. So it's a very diverse, in every respect, group, the initiative, and we've had quite an impact. Was there any difficulty in convincing people to join? No. (laughs) Okay. I mean, there was a great deal of enthusiasm in joining. And I, I think that this group has been needed for a long, long time. And I think there was widespread recognition of that. So individually, people had some knowledge of the need for the group to be in existence, but somehow didn't know how to make that happen. Absolutely. I mean, some were lawyers working on parole applications on their own, really longing for the support of others, but that group did not exist. Okay. And and, and had you known or been aware of the work of all of these individuals who are members now? Is that how you identify them? Well, I've actually worked on this issue for a long time. And I must say one of the extraordinary members of our group is a woman named Sarah Bennett. And I have been working with Sarah since around the year 2000, maybe even earlier than that. And she and I partnered, and it was really Sarah's leadership, in a clemency campaign for a woman named Linda White an African-American woman who killed her batterer after she had been denied police protection. She had been denied the ability to get a civil order protection from family court because she was not married to her abuser. And really, after suffering horrific violence, including rapes, being penetrated by objects, she killed her abuser. And she had served well over a decade in prison when Sarah initiated a campaign for clemency for Linda White. Ultimately, we were successful. Governor George Pataki granted her clemency. And so Sarah was just a natural to bring into this work. But the work has been happening in New York State really since the 80s. And it started under, well, with Elaine Lord's full cooperation, if not leadership, Some other extraordinary leaders involved were Charlotte Watson, who was the executive director of My Sister's Place and then became the executive director of the New York State Office for the Prevention of Domestic Violence, Ronnie Eldridge, former city councilwoman, and others. And what they did in the mid-'80s is they realized that there were women in prison who had suffered horrific acts of gender-based violence, especially domestic violence, and that was very strongly linked to the crimes they committed and actually held hearings on domestic violence inside Bedford Hills. And 
they were heavily covered by the media, and they began to affect change. And a lot of those, Ronnie Eldridge ended up joining the Incarcerated Gender Violence Survivor Initiative, Charlotte Watson as well. So I, I think this work has been going on since the 80s, but we didn't have a focused initiative, and that's what's changed. So I'm guessing that the demand for your work and services is greater than the supply. Well, you know, it's interesting. We are very much, we have some supply now. Oh, good. (laughs) Because we have four and maybe even five major law firms with attorneys eager to take on these cases. And so what we're doing is we're working on identifying cases where gender-based violence played a significant role in the commission of the crime. We're recognizing them. A number of them are clemency, not only parole cases, but we're eager to hear from others who may want representation. We're going into the prisons. I'm going to Taconic Correctional Facility. This coming Friday, we're making regular visits. And so if anyone out there knows of a woman or a man whose crime was connected with gender-based violence and needs representation, please let us know. Okay, so besides you going out to the prison, (laughs) what are the other ways by which you identify cases? And I must say that many of us are regularly going out to the prisons. Well, you know, formerly incarcerated people are a great source of referrals. Uh I mean, it's just a huge gift to be working side by side with formerly incarcerated people. They have such a wealth of knowledge about prisons, the legal system, relevant law, and the histories of people inside who need our help. So they've been an incredible source. Are there any criteria for representation that would disqualify someone? So if the crime was not connected to gender-based violence, significantly connected, that might disqualify someone. But other than that, you know, we are the Incarcerated Gender Violence Survivors Initiative. Other than that, there really I can't think of anything that would disqualify someone. The incarcerated people we're assisting are very diverse. We've just taken on the clemency case for a woman in her mid-60s who is suffering very severe disability. I was very happy when you were talking about the different forms of oppression, Terry, that you mentioned disability, because I think disabled people are often not included in the, in the list of people who are discriminated against and suffer oppression. And this woman is a victim of very severe domestic violence and suffering from a debilitating extremely painful spinal condition. And we will be, one of the firms is taking on her case. I'm so thrilled that there's a possibility of getting her out where she can get the medical help that she needs. She can't get it while she's in prison. She needs surgery that she can't get in prison because she needs to go into a rehabilitation facility, and that's not available to prisoners at Bedford Hills or Taconic. We're also, we found a law firm that is interested in representing a transgender man in an upstate prison. And he suffered very severe gender-based violence himself. And also the crime that he committed was carried out when he was trying to protect a female partner, intimate partner, from gender-based violence. When I shared the statistics earlier, I didn't go into the specific numbers with regard to the connection between gender-based violence and incarceration. Mm-hmm. So I want to share some of those right now mm-hmm. and have you respond. Many of the women who are incarcerated, as you 
have mentioned have a shared history of abuse. So in, in other words, they've experienced some, some form of gender-based violence, such as either prostitution or sex trafficking, forced drug trafficking, or some sort of commercial sex exploitation and child mm-hmm. sexual abuse. So I guess what I'd like to know is if we are aware of these statistics, why isn't there more being done to actually address the causes not just respond when the actual violence has already happened. Well, we really need to address the causes. It's clear, and there are not enough resources directed to prevention and to providing assistance at the earliest possible stage. That's absolutely true. I mean, we don't have a lot of education in our school system, for example. Guidance counselors, teachers are not trained to spot the signs of childhood sexual abuse, physical abuse, other forms of abuse, and provide assistance to children survivors, families. So I think we need to put a lot more in the way of resources into the front end. No question about it. And then just generally, there's not a lot of awareness, even today, and there's a tremendous amount of victim blaming, especially when you talk about forms of gender-based violence related to, well, sexual abuse and commercial sexual exploitation. We know there have been real problems with For example, NYPD's response to sexual abuse, especially when it takes place in an intimate partner or acquaintance or dating context, a lot of victim blaming as well. And if we talk about commercial sexual exploitation, prostitution, trafficking, that's where we see real problems with institutions' responses, with systems' responses, a lot of victim-blaming. Victims are denigrated as, quote-unquote, prostitutes, or blinders are put on, and they're called workers. And the abuse they're suffering, the oppression they're experiencing, is rendered invisible. I mean, we have to do something to change that. Well, I mean, the fact that over 80%, 86%, specifically of women in prison, Mm -hmm. have experienced rape in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. So I think that speaks to rape culture in general. But then when you add what you've just shared around the institutional response, Mm -hmm. which is exacerbated, to me, it's in some ways possibly unlikely that we can actually make any changes if the people who are involved in responding in law enforcement or first responders are also embodying these same prejudices and and biases that actually have created the system of rape culture to begin with. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we have a lot of work to do in educating law enforcement at every single level and actually at holding law enforcement accountable at every single level. And that work has been going on. We've been trying to do it as a movement for decades now, but we still have a lot more work to do. I know that there is a task force working with NYPD around its response to sexual abuse that has really struggled. I know that a leader in NYPD who was especially responsive was sidelined, sent out of his post to another position. I mean, we're really worried about what's happening on that front. 
But I think with training and education, if we can get in the door <laughs> and have the opportunity to begin to do that training and education, it can make a difference. And maybe I can give you an example. So last spring, we had the opportunity with the complete support of the chair of the parole commission to educate all of the parole commissioners in New York State about gender-based violence. And it was an intensive five-hour training. We brought in an extraordinary professor from John Jay, Dr. Chicha Raghavan, to train about trauma, the science of trauma. And as important as Dr. Raghavan's presentation was, and you could see just a different level of awareness as she was speaking, and, and really, you know, just a parole commissioners having epiphanies about things like memory. You know, if a trauma victim might actually not remember something, it, she or he may not be lying, but trauma affects memory. But I think as transformative as Dr. Raghavan's presentation was, even more transformative was the presentation by a survivor, a formerly incarcerated woman who had served more than 30 years not only about her experiences, about the crime itself and her experience in prison, about experiences that preceded that, you know, growing up in foster care, being sexually abused repeatedly by her foster father, and ending up with no support whatsoever after leaving a group home, and ending up, not surprisingly, in a severely abusive relationship. As she was detailing her history to the parole commissioners, some of them began to weep. And you could watch hearts and minds changing to an extent. I don't want to overstate that. But I think that the voice of a survivor in that kind of context really can change things in an important way. We need to follow up with that. And I think many had not contemplated that the women and men who come before them might have histories of severe, longstanding abuse, discrimination, oppression. That all sounds great. <laughs> and then the reason why I'm having my, my response to you while you were talking is, but all of this information is already available. This, it's available in our cultural vernacular. We have lifetime movies that share the, yeah. the, the stories that the survivors shared, I'm sure. Yeah. And people make fun of it. We, ha we just had Christine, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford talk about yeah. memory, and yeah. people made fun of her. Yeah. It's not like this information isn't available to these parole yeah. supervisors and commissioners. I'm not sure that it's necessarily available to them. And I think um, for Dr. Christine uh, Blasey Ford... I think that was the first that many had heard about how trauma affects memory. Maybe there's some Lifetime movies out there, but I don't know. To, and, and I mean, even recently, there's so much out in the broader culture that distorts, that covers over, that romanticizes, that sanitizes. I'm not sure that a consumer of popular culture really can distill those messages very easily. Criminal minds. Yeah. <laughs> law and Order SVU. It's all about the construction but, you know, of psychology. But I want to tell you, Law and Order, forgive me, gets it wrong more often than it gets it right. As much as I love Mariska Har Hargitay, <laughs> as much as I love the Joyful Heart Foundation, the organization she founded, she's Great. But, you know, I've noticed so often how 
that law and order gets it wrong and the message that's propagated in popular culture is really problematic. Can, can um, you give me some examples where it's she gets it wrong? Well, I uh, law and order or, often, or, the, or the law and order SVU I, uh, franchise. Maybe every other episode it gets it wrong, I must say, but I just I watched a series about Patty Hearst and her abduction and there was nothing, you know, I believe it was a CNN series. There was really nothing meaningful about trauma and trauma bonding. It's it's impossible to understand what happened to her if you don't understand trauma bonding. Traumatic bonding, I mean, that's a key part of what Dr. Raghavan was training the parole commissioners in. So I think that a lot of this was new information and was presented you know, with the blessing, so to speak, of the institution itself. And I think more of that, much, much more of that needs to happen, coupled with accountability. What actually was covered during those five hours, it doesn't seem like it's enough. And is what are the next steps for them? So the net, we want to follow up. And actually, um, I had a conversation with the chair of the parole board, and they want more training. And the, this request comes from the commissioners themselves. I just want to say, I don't want to sound like a starry-eyed Pollyanna. And I, unfortunately, I am sort of congenitally an optimist. But I, there were some other things I noticed in that training. And that is, there were many new parole commissioners There were parole commissioners who were coming from places other than law enforcement. There were more parole commissioners of color than ever before, and that can affect change as well. Coming from other sectors, meaning healthcare, maybe? Social work, healthcare, nonprofits. And um, I do know that the governor is very eager to fill vacancies with people like that. So if you come from one of those realms and want a very demanding but very important job as a parole commissioner, please submit your application. Before you started the initiative, there are a lot of statistics and facts that actually justified and exposed the gender bias Mm -hmm. that women who are incarcerated face compared to Mm men. Mm -hmm. And one of them is at least in New York, and a study that was conducted in New York, the women who were incarcerated that were survivors of gender-based violence had a 0% recidivism rate. And yet the clemency and parole rates were not reflective of that risk. How much weight can we actually give to facts if people aren't going to, if they're going to ignore them? Yeah, I, I agree. Women who have been incarcerated for crimes that emerge from experiences of gender-based violence don't commit crimes when they get out. I mean, that is just a fact. We know it anecdotally, and we know it from research that is out there. You know, unfortunately, I think we need a lot more research in this area, and research is thin. So this is an appeal to researchers. If We need more studies about recidivism and gender-based violence. Very, very important. But We do have evidence, and that evidence, unfortunately, is almost ignored. And when certainly when we did our training with the parole commissioners, we emphasized the very low to non-existent recidivism rate of incarcerated gender violence survivors. Is there an objective set of criteria for determining whether someone should be paroled? Well, what there is is there's a test called a compass test, And most incarcerated survivors, well, first of all, most of them have just unblemished prison records. 
you know, ironically, some of them feel safe for the first time in their lives when they're in prison. And what a sad statement is that. I've heard that repeatedly when I've met with survivors. Very often, they end up becoming the most trusted inmates who forge strong relationships, not only with other inmates, mentoring relationships with other inmates, but with prison leaders. And there are some enlightened and involved leaders like Elaine Lord. I have met with the superintendent of Taconic Correctional Facility, and she is one of them who are change agents. Of course, it's hard to affect change in that context. But we have seen instances in which the COMPASS test results have been problematic. And in our individual advocacy for incarcerated gender violence survivors, we're working to address that. We're bringing it to the attention of prison officials. And we're we're also bringing in experts that will challenge problematic COMPASS results. So the COMPASS test is being used for all genders of incarcerated yes, people. Okay. Yes. And so is it being selectively applied in the in the determination of parole? Because um, then I, I would see that to be a problem. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's being selectively applied in that women are being discriminated against in some way in its application. Sometimes in some instances it may be inaccurately applied and that can be really problematic. For example, I am working on one case in which it was not well applied. It was applied in a sloppy way. The information is inaccurate, and it suggests that this particular incarcerated survivor has a substance abuse issue. She hasn't used substances, illegal substances, in more than 20 years and was not using them at the time that she committed the crime. So there, it's very, very important that the testers get it right. And this is an, it's very important that these survivors have attorneys who can, when testers get it wrong, can hold those testers accountable and try to ensure that accurate compass results inform the parole application. I see. So in our discussion, we've talked a lot about the current work that's being done to mitigate some of the gender bias effects of the criminal justice system and its treatment of incarcerated gender-based violence survivors. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to play a game with you. Pretend that you have a magic wand. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and I want you to answer as if you had the magic wand, and you could do whatever you wanted to do to address the facts and the statistics that I'm about to share. Okay, so the first, girls of color who are victims of abuse are more likely to be processed by the criminal justice system and labeled as offenders than white girls. Mm -hmm. So white girls who are abused have a better chance of being treated as victims and referred to child welfare and mental health systems, for example. So what can we do about racial bias in the system? So I think that is intensive education within law enforcement at every level and with child welfare at every level. I mean, there is work happening you know, I've seen some very positive changes with child welfare authorities. Um, you may know that my organization sued ACS in New York City in the early 2000s for child welfare systems' very problematic response to domestic violence. What they were doing is when they identified domestic violence in a family, were charging victims with failure to protect and putting their children into foster care in a very 
problematic way, and we've seen some important changes. So I think there needs to be education. There needs to be important tasks for task forces and, and initiatives within in New York City Administration for Children's Services. I've seen some of that work happening around the issue of trafficking of children, not enough around racism, especially as it involves girls of color. So I think the foster care system needs to have special attention by ACS. But to me, this is principally education training coupled with accountability. Okay. Next one. Women of all races use drugs at approximately the same rate, but women of color are arrested and imprisoned at much higher rates. So this speaks to both the perception of our society and who use drugs and why and, and, and how they're mm-hmm. labeled. In your earlier question and answer, you were talking more about the systemic response of the various systems that you work with. Mm-hmm. What can we do for this answer with regard to culture and education, like starting earlier, before people actually become caseworkers in the Administration for Children's Services, before they become adults and decide to go into law enforcement as a job? You know, How can we shape them and their opinions and attitudes so that they're going in for the right reasons with the right mindset? I mean, I think that's getting into educational institutions to the greatest extent possible. You know, I have the privilege of teaching a course on domestic violence and the law at Silberman School of Social Work. And one of the things I've been really surprised by, my students are mostly workers on the front lines of all of these, of nonprofits, of city agencies like ACS. And I have been astonished by the paucity of education that they've gotten about gender-based violence and sexism, racism, overlapping oppressions. And I find focusing intensively on that, those issues in my course has a big impact. So getting, uh, you know, that's basically sociology 101. Yes. Sociology, psychology, feminism 101. Yes. And, you know, my students are incredibly receptive. Many, many of my students are themselves survivors and but have not really processed it or had the information they need. I mean, this just goes back to popular culture. I don't think does a very good job of educating people about these issues the reality, the prevalence, the role of trauma. So I think getting into educational institutions is crucially important. Which one might argue could be a difference of opinion and a cultural, because people have different opinions about what is culture mm-hmm. and, and what is appropriate culture to teach. Yes. And for example, in teaching about the culture of consent, Mm-hmm. You actually have to talk about, mm-hmm. <laughs> give sexual education, mm-hmm. you know, a priority in the mm-hmm. schools. Yes. And if abstinence is something that you believe in, then there's no opportunity to talk yeah. about consent. Yes, absolutely. And getting good <laughs> sex education in the schools that is intersectional in its approach and is feminist in its approach is crucially, crucially important. I mean, what we're seeing is our young people are getting most of their information about sexuality from pornography, which is extraordinarily accessible, tends to be extremely misogynistic, increasingly misogynistic as time passes. And so never has it been so vitally important that there be excellent sex education in our school system. 
I'd love to ask you about your opinion of pornography, but we'll have that. We'll set that aside for a separate yeah. conversation. Well, I've been on the record about that. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> Would you like to share? No, I mean, on you know, pornography is a form of socialization uh, for everyone in this society, and it seeps into every part of our culture. I mean, for example, women and girls are exposed to it because it infects the fashion industry and 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 fashion magazines, social media, etc. But, you know, sadly, it is the way at an increasingly young age, because so, it's so accessible via social media, that boys in particular are educated about sex. And it is deeply, the messages are deeply misogynistic. You know, it communicates the message that that women and girls are Commodities, essentially objects to be consumed, not human beings with their own in and owners of their bodies and their sexuality. It's a very narrow form of sexuality that's being inculcated, and it's very consistent. Well, part of rape culture, mm-hmm. so it's 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 problematic and it is ubiquitous. So, what are your thoughts around? the legalization of prostitution, for example, and pornography in general, do you believe that there is there can be any form of pornography that is appropriate? Like some feminists have said, erotica is okay well, as long as you take the power and control away and it's equally consensual, mutual. Well, that, that's Gloria Steinem's right, yeah. position. And yeah. I don't, you know, I'm supportive of that. It doesn't mean, can there be sexually explicit imagery that is predicated on gender equality, of course. I, I wouldn't call that pornography. Right, I'd, like right. Gloria, I would call it erotica. You know, pornography, the term pornography comes from the term, I believe it's Latin or Greek, the writing about quote-unquote whores. That's not a word I use. But it really is comes from the commercial sexual exploitation and abuse of women and girls. But about the legalization of prostitution, I mean, we've seen that experiment play out in countries like Germany, the Netherlands, and so forth. And and just it, it is state-sanctioned prostitution. It falsely posits prostitution as a job like any other job. It's not. And creates an enormous demand for prostitution. And the inevitable response is an increase in trafficking of the most vulnerable girls and women. So if we look at Germany and the Netherlands, who is being prostituted in those countries? Immigrant women from the global south and east. And it's so with strong indicia of trafficking in Germany to meet the demand created by legalization. There have been the development of mega brothels where the women who are employed by those mega brothels have to do anything that the brothel owners demand. And we know a lot about who those women are. Many, many of them are women and girls from Eastern Europe under the control of traffickers. So legalization rolls out the red carpet to traffickers and their confederates. It's a disaster for women's safety and for gender equality. So I'm very much opposed to the legalization of prostitution. What about the Nordic model? Well, I think the Nordic model is the way to go. And we've seen that now not only in Norway and Sweden, but also in France, to a a certain extent in Canada. And it's predicated on the idea that there is a link between prostitution and trafficking, that no one should be arrested for prostitution, that people in conditions of prostitution are at great risk. 
and that who should be held accountable? Well, the exploiters at every level, including those who purchase sex. Mm. I'll make this one of the last questions with regard to this quote unquote game that we were playing around getting your feedback. So with regard to women in prison who are mothers, the majority of them actually are mothers and they were the primary caretaker of their children prior to incarceration. But under the Federal Adoption and Safe Families Act, whenever a child has lived in foster care for 15 of the most 22 recent months, the state is required to file a petition to terminate parental rights. And although the minimum sentence for a female offender is generally 36 months, this rule makes doesn't make an exception for incarcerated parents. So it, in my eye, um, extends the gender bias that women already face, survivors already face when they're going through divorce or custody and then being criminalized. If this is a fact, what can we do about this? Yeah. I mean, I'm very worried about the Adoption and Safe Families Act as it impacts incarcerated women. I mean, one of the cruelest punishments that incarcerated women and and sometimes men, incarcerated gender violence survivors in particular face is separation from their beloved children. And so often the survivors were the primary caretakers of these children. And I have to give an enormous shout out to organizations that make it possible for survivors, women generally, to visit with their children while they're in prison. But I'm also seeing the Adoption and Safe Families Act being used against gender violence survivors generally, trafficking victims and others who their children are taken from them, often wrongly, end up in foster care, often for sustained periods of time. Foster care agencies have a really problematic track record in keeping those relationships going strong. And these women face termination of their parental rights. We're involved in a case right now for a woman who was trafficked completely under the control of a brutal, brutal pimp with two children. And ultimately, she was able to get services and get out. And she's now gainfully employed. She's a little bit of a star (laughs) now, a survivor leader who's been recognized by the Human Trafficking Intervention Court. But her parental rights to her older child um, were terminated. And we're appealing, assisting her in appealing that determination. We've submitted an amicus brief in her support. Ironically and contradictorily, her parental rights to her second child were not terminated because (laughs) there was a change in judge. And the second judge understood trafficking and enabled her to quickly have unsupervised visitation with this child. But we know that children want relationships with their biological parents, Always. And even when parental rights are terminated, that does not stop that child from seeking out the biological parent, biological mother in particular. And what an injustice this law is doing to mothers and children, especially those who are poor, of color, subjected to gender-based violence. I imagine that it's also being used to impact the immigrant women who are coming through the borders who have been separated from their children as well. Of course, of course. Of course, they're going to be at special risk. So earlier in the introduction, I talked about the intersection between gender, disability, race, and class. So these last two comments deal with class and disability. Mm -hmm. Nearly 30% of women prisoners 
were receiving public assistance before their arrest compared to 8% of male prisoners. And nearly 20% of them report being homeless the year prior to incarceration. And women in prison are also more likely to suffer from a mental illness than men once they are in prison. So what can we do to address the disproportionate impact of class and disability and on women? Well, that's a big, big problem, <laughs> a big problem. And as, as you were detailing those statistics, I was thinking that in terms of mental health and women in prison, so often that has to do with trauma. So often those are women who have suffered high levels of gender-based violence and now have untreated post-traumatic stress disorder and other forms of mental health issues related to their trauma. And we need to ensure that they get the treatment that they need while in prison, that all incarcerated people get the mental health treatment they need in prison. And there is very, very little available to them. Yet if prisons are going to be about rehabilitation, you know, they're supposed to be, that is absolutely essential. But I think, you know, it goes back to resources, you know, and the social safety net of our society. And it is tattered beyond words from the very beginning. You know, what kinds of resources are available to mothers, young mothers, their children in communities that are underserved, struggling economically? Well, it's not going to happen under this political administration. Let's hope with a new generation of leadership and what we see happening actually in Congress, in our state legislature, that there will begin to be a reallocation of resources and that that reallocation takes place always with a gender framework and a gender lens, as well as a racial justice framework and lens. Could you give us an example of a success story that you've worked with before we end our conversation in a positive note? I mean, it's hard to give one. I mean, there's so many, but maybe I'll start with the woman that I was describing who served more than 30 years. Um, So just to quickly recap, African-American, born to a mother who suffered severe mental health issues and untreated, ended up in foster care, sexually abused, in a group home, no support system when she left and continued abuse in the group home. And then under the control of two abusive men and in prison when she was in her early 20s. I mean, what I'm struck by is she actually in many ways flourished in prison. She had friendships. She was safe. This is not an advertisement for prison. It's just a measure of how traumatic her life was prior to prison and was very, very trusted by the leadership. And fortunately, ultimately, it was Elaine Lord, who was a very wise woman who, when she became the superintendent of Bedford Hills. But when she got out (laughs) with support and assistance from a whole network of friends and supporters. She ended up employed with a great job running the shelter program of a prominent domestic violence organization. She became an activist and leader. She's now a leader in the Incarcerated Gender Violence Survivor Initiative. She's using her own story to raise awareness 
to affect change, to empower others. So, I mean, that would be an example. I mean, we talk about oppression and abuse and suffering. We can't lose sight of resilience. And we've seen that survivors have incredible stores of resilience, so much to offer our society. So that would be one success story. And I think the support system that among others, my colleague Charlotte Watson helped provide her, went to visit her while she was in prison, encouraged her to apply for parole. Elaine Lord and others, I think that was really transformative and made all the difference. Thank you. At the end of every conversation, we ask our guests a series of questions, engendered questions that have adapted from the Inside the Actor Studio questionnaire. <laughs> My first question to you is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? I mean, everything. (laughs) Everything is at stake. The well-being, safety, equality, possibilities, future of women and men alike. And I just want to point out, men are harmed by this too. You know, the socialization that men are, is, is imposed on men from the time they're little boys is damaging to men and deprives them of so many things, including the wonderful gift of a healthy, mutual, equal, intimate partner relationship. And ultimately, of course, the safety of our, and, and, and survival of our planet. You know, our planet is at enormous, enormous risk. You know, climate change is devastating our planet. And that's very much connected to oppression of poor, vulnerable people. So we need to see the parallels between gender justice, racial and class justice, and environmental justice, the the intersections of all of these. And I'm so impressed with you, Terry, because that clearly is something that you do over and over again in your podcasts and these this programming. So thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to participate. Thank you. Next question. What gives you hope? Seeing change happen, seeing change in the lives of individuals, mainly in my case, women and children, seeing policies and laws change in ways that are just and empowering to vulnerable populations. And our final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop as individuals and as a society? I mean, I think we need to take action. And there's so much everyone can do, wherever she or he is, in whatever community he or she lives in, to look around (laughs) with a gender lens, a gender justice, racial justice lens, class justice lens, and do something. Thank you, Dorchin. It's been a pleasure having you on our show. Yeah, a pleasure being interviewed by you, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.